Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 360 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the indie science fiction film Prospect, directed by Zeke Earl and Chris Caldwell. And this will involve spoilers for everything in the movie, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Rajan Khanna, making his 13th appearance on the show. He's the author of the post-apocalyptic novels Falling Sky, Rising Tide, and Raining Fire. And his short fiction appears in magazines such as Lightspeed, Shimmer, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. His articles have appeared on Tor.com and LitReactor.com. So Raj, welcome to the show. Thanks, lucky 13 appearance. <laughs> the next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, making her 10th appearance on the show. She's a Ravenclaw Trekkie maker feminist who writes at Medium and lives in Northern California with a Renaissance engineer, a dog, and a bird. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. And also joining us today is Chris Savasco, making his eighth appearance on the show. From 2003 to 2009, he was the editor of Paradox, the magazine of historical and speculative fiction, and his short fiction has appeared in magazines such as Nightmare and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. He's also written three historical thrillers, all of which he's currently shopping around to agents. And his new Dungeons & Dragons supplement, Philoseal's Ultimate Guide to Poison, is available now through the DMs Guild website. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start off with the most important thing. Chris wrote a Dungeons & Dragons book. <laughs> so how did that happen? Uh, I guess just wish fulfillment. Something that I've yeah, imagined like, doing. Like how, did that, how did it come about? Uh, it, like a lot of these things, it's something that I wished existed and it didn't exist. So I started coming up with sort of homebrewed ideas for doing a, a guide to, you know, poison and then put it together using the, uh, the, you know, the procedures available on the DMs Guild website and, uh, and it's published through there now. Mm -hmm. So have you always been interested in poisoning people or did you have to do all <laughs> yes. the research or, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, I guess a little bit of both. <laughs> and so have you gotten any uh, reviews or anything yet? No reviews yet. It's only actually been uh, live for a couple of weeks, but it's been uh, it's been selling pretty steadily, so hopefully people are enjoying it. Mm. And so, again, it's called Philoseal's Ultimate Guide to Poison. So everyone go right. check that out. And it's actually sort of apropos since we're going to be talking about a poisonous planet. So you can uh, hopefully your poison expertise will come in handy for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, but so, yeah, so we're going to be talking about this movie prospect. And so the first thing I'm wondering is just had anyone heard of this movie before I emailed you guys about it? Nope. I had, um, mostly because of a Facebook targeted ad. I think it was something like if you like Star Wars and space Westerns or something like that, um, check out this movie prospect. And it, it even mentioned, uh, um, God, I just forgot the, the main guy's name. Um, Pedro Pascal. Pedro Pascal. And I had, I was thinking like, oh, that sounds interesting, but do I have time to watch something that I know nothing about? And I, I didn't until you mentioned the movie and then I watched it and I'm so glad I did. So. Well, yeah. And you do definitely like Star Wars and Westerns. So. It's true. Yeah. Facebook does. It, they, they, they the algorithm you. worked. It just, you know, it didn't sell me enough. So. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had not heard of it. Um, but as soon as I saw that Peter Pascal was in it, I was sold on that. I've, I've loved everything he's been in. 
Yeah, I think it's a little below the radar. I mean, I uh, I think it premiered last year at South by Southwest. So, and I think it, it had a limited theatrical run. Um, like I said, it's an independent film, and I think it was not originally planned to have a theatrical run, but I think uh, it turned out well enough that they're like, oh, let's give it a shot. Um, I didn't I didn't hear about it until I just was browsing the iTunes charts, and I just saw that it had uh, like a ninety percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and so uh, so I got some friends together. Uh, to watch it and i was like wow this is really good actually i'm just gonna put my cards on the table i think this movie's totally awesome and uh you know i really just wanted to spread the word about it um and just talk about it because i think it's cool but um i don't know does everyone everyone like this movie as much as i did or anyone not like it so much yeah i loved it i thought it was i thought it was really great I mean, I think what I liked the most about it, and 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 by the way, if I, I had just seen this movie in a vacuum and wasn't told that it was a low budget film, I I, I wouldn't have thought that it was. I mean, it, it seemed high budget to me. Uh, it's a hot, you know. Um, I, I I think they they did a lot with a little, um, apparently, mm-hmm. because it it felt like um, you know, even though the the basic plot line of the story is pretty straightforward, the world that was created just felt so multifaceted and and deep. I mean, there were so many so many sort of things going on in the background that are referenced that just give you this idea that this world is something that 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 exists and has existed for a while, and and that the society has all these different things going on in it, and uh, it just felt really rich to me. Yeah, yeah. Sarah. No, I, I agree. Um, I really enjoy the fact that the main character is this, you know, teenage girl that uh, has event- evidently been working since she was a child, basically, from very few uh, dialogue. There's not a lot of dialogue in total in the film, but you get from, you know, a lot from what's there. You know, her father's kind of, you know, kind of a deadbeat space dad. <laughs> Um, you don't particularly care too much when he dies. Whoa, um, whoa, whoa! You're getting a little ahead. Of, <laughs> you're getting a little ahead there, Sarah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it's kind of neat when I, as much as I appreciate sort of overblown female badasses in films like Wonder Woman or Captain Marvel, it's really nice uh, to see when that happens at an understated, much more realistic and approachable level. Right. So the main character is named C, C-E-E, uh, played by Sophie Thatcher in her theatrical debut. Uh, I think she was previously, um, she was doing theater, like live theater. And I heard that she had, uh, she played Anne Frank in something like 200 shows. So even though she's uh, she was 16 when she was in this movie, she's, you know, was already a very experienced actor. Uh, and she's like phenomenal in this, yeah. I thought. I Absolutely. mean, ev- everyone, I think, is, is phenomenal. Everyone's great. Yeah. Um, I'll say, I guess, just a little bit more about the background. So uh, the, the, the co-directors, Zeke Earl and Chris Caldwell, went to college together and they used to go hiking in the... Uh, what's it called? Olympics, Olympic National Forest uh, outside Seattle, which is where this movie was filmed. And so they would always just think like, wow, this would make an awesome alien planet. Uh, we got to do that someday. And they made a short film called Into the Pines, which was accepted into South by Southwest in 2011. And it's about uh, a teenage girl who hikes out into the woods in anticipation of being uh, picked up by aliens for a second time. 
And so when it got into South by Southwest, a bunch of, you know, distributors or whatever showed interest in, you know, in whether they could turn it into a feature and they had never planned, planned to turn it into a feature. And so they kind of worked on it for a while, but I couldn't really think of a good way to, to turn it into a feature. And so they're like, all right, let's make another short film, but this time we'll sort of plan it from the beginning that we can expand it into a feature. And so they made Prospect as a short, and that was in 2014. And then it took them a couple years to raise money for, uh, you know, to finance it as a feature. And, uh, and then the feature fi film version that we'll be talking about today came out in 2018. Uh, did anyone else have a chance to watch the short film version? I did not actually get to, but I would love to check that out at some point. Uh, Sarah, so Sarah, what did you think of the short film? I don't think the performances were as good, um, and I might not have noticed it as much if I hadn't started with the film. Um, but the and the actors are different, so that you know would have something to do with that. But I also. Um, there's a there's some pretty big differences in the character. You know, the father uh, is a completely different kind of father in the short film. So yeah, I could I definitely feel like it's one of those things where I should have actually watched the short first. Um, but because after watching the film, you can only it's only natural that you feel like oh well this is not as good. <laughs> <What's up? laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, I would, I agree that you should, you know, if you've seen the feature film, the, the short film, I mean, you know, it's, it's not a must watch thing. I mean, it's, um, yeah, the, the plot is, I think, completely different. And yeah, you said the actors are different. One thing, interestingly, it was filmed in the same place with even some of the same trees and things in the background. Um, so that's kind of interesting, but, that's um, believable. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, but yeah, so 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 Sarah was saying that um, the movie starts out, and you have this teenage girl, C, and she and her father are on this uh, starship, and it's all it's sort of, it's very sort of you know cramped and uncomfortable and, and and not glamorous at all, and we gather that they're sort of very working class uh, characters, and they're getting ready to go take a drop pod down to this alien moon. Um, and so Sarah said that she she didn't care at all whether this dad that guy died or anything. Uh, Siraj, did you did you not also not care whether the dad died at all? I mean, I guess I cared. I, I think they set up definitely that that he is a um, complicated individual to to be euphemistic about it. I mean, he he seems driven by trying. You know, he, he seems to be one of those characters that we see in fiction sometimes who is looking for that like score looking to be set up where he doesn't have to struggle all the time, but his life seems to have been all struggle and hustling and trying to figure out the next thing. Um, and it seems like the casualty of that kind of life is that his daughter has a pretty shitty life, you know? And so I think my sympathy was definitely with the daughter and I, I, I definitely thought he was, um, uh, I definitely felt like she did not have the chance to have her own life in that relationship. Um, I mean, early on we see him kind of, you know, telling her to do various things like scrub the, the filters and, and fix the gun and, and, uh, you know, while he pops some pills and like 
goes to sleep and it just that that whole relationship i think is definitely set up to be uncomfortable um i don't think he was evil i don't know that he deserved to die but i definitely think that his actions put him in a place where his life was at risk you know um and i think the the tension there is that you don't want to see the his daughter die see die um because of his decisions you know she she kind of just wants them to have safety she wants them to be able to get back up to the ship and go back to a more i guess quote unquote civilized life um and it's his ambition that kind of drags them into danger yeah he's definitely a sympathetic character like you you i mean we all know someone like that um but you know ultimately love is a verb and he was not protecting his daughter from danger. He was constantly sort of pushing the envelope of their set levels of safety. And you could see that resentment in the daughter of being the adult in, you know, for the last several years or whatever. And it's actually kind of an accomplishment uh, for them to convey that much with so little dialogue. And, you know, he dies fairly early in the film and uh, you don't really see a lot, but you see just enough to understand what their whole dynamic is and kind of see her as this very alone character who has to be her, you know, not only take care of herself, but also take care of this father. See, Chris, as a, as a dad, did you feel any more uh, sympathy for this, this dad? He's just, he's trying, he's, he's trying to do his best. Yeah, I mean... I, I think I kind of agree with a little bit of everything that's been said in as much as, yeah, I wasn't particularly broken up when he was killed. Although, you know, the the biggest uh, problem I had with that was, I, I guess, what bothered me about his death was worrying that now his daughter was in even greater danger without him there. Uh, although, that said, I think up until the point where Pedro Pascal shows up um, as initially the the, the main antagonist um i feel like up until that point the tension in the film was all because you know you the the viewer realized that the father was the one putting his daughter in constant risk and constant danger and you you definitely got the sense that he was never being entirely honest with her you weren't quite sure what his angle was um but you knew that he was putting her in harm's way um and so you were always very nervous about, oh, gosh, what is he getting her into? Um, that said, you know, I think, again, it, uh, as Sarah said, they, they did a really nuanced job of making it, you know, you felt sympathy for him because you saw that he was obviously still in some ways trying to cope with the loss of his wife um, and, uh, and yeah, had this kind of, uh, you know, I drive to kind of oh if only we can get this one big score everything's going to be all right we just need to do this just one more just a little bit more and then we'll be okay and it was like this kind of carrot that he was always reaching for right. well yeah so let's just say so they they go down to this planet surface and as i said it's this sort of toxic poisonous jungle with all this toxic dust floating in the air and so they have to wear like biohazard kind of spacesuits um all the time and so they're there looking for these um, sort of buried under the grounds are these kind of alien placentas uh, and you cut them open and they have um, kind of eggs or something inside 
and you cut those open and you have to do it very carefully because if you do it wrong, the whole thing kind of dissolves into acidic mush. Uh, but if you do it right, there's a beautiful gem inside. Um, and these are extremely valuable. And we sort of gather this is the only place probably in the known in known space that you can find these things. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that's sort of, uh, what they're doing there. So what did, um, Raj, what did you think of the, uh, of that scene where you, you find out what they're doing on this planet? I mean, I thought it was great. Like I, you know, it, so my initial question before I saw it was like, what does prospect mean? And then I was quickly learned it was about like prospecting, like in the old West for gold and things like that. I mean, he even mentions a, a rush at one point in time, um, Damon, the father, but you know, to, if they were just digging rocks out of the ground, it would not have been as interesting as the fact that they were harvesting these kind of organic things and, and having all these different steps that need to take place. Um, I thought that that was a great touch. And I, I kind of like that they don't even get into what the potential ramifications are. Like I, I constantly were thinking like, are they killing these things? Are these eggs of some creatures? You know, what is the, the biological damage that they're doing? Um, it implied some kind of, you know, ecological cost to, to what they were doing, but, um, I didn't need to have that spelled out. So I, I, I kind of really like the way they do that. Um, but I also, I mean, just to kind of touch back on the dad also in conjunction with these gems, I mean, to me, the villain of this piece, and maybe this isn't my own personal like worldview, um, but is kind of like sort of late stage capitalism. You know, the fact that, they have this world where people are obviously like struggling to kind of get enough money to survive and to even like get to like a good place to live. Um, and so they're willing to take these risks and put their families in harm and like these gems, you know, like what is the ultimate end point for these gems? I assume they're going to be brought back and sold to people and maybe made into jewelry and like sit in collections and things like that. So like this is about kind of the the people who are struggling and dying to provide rich gems to like a wealthy class that we don't even get to see i mean you knew raj right going into this that this was sort of star wars plus westerns because of that facebook ad i mean i i sort of did but like i didn't really i mean it it's pretty full-on western i mean from my point of view like i, I would see a less star wars but just you know if you stripped away the the planet and the, you know, the suits and everything like that. I mean, you know, you could, you could t potentially set a story like this in the old West, you know, panning for gold. It wouldn't be as good, I don't think. And that's what I think makes this movie great. Cause it's like a, a good science fiction short story and that it's uh, a, a story that is enhanced by the, the science fictional elements. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I wasn't prepared for how Westerny it was. Um, and of course I really enjoyed that part. So. Right. I mean, I didn't immediately notice that it was a Western. My girlfriend, Stephanie, actually noticed before I did. And she's like, this kind of reminds me of True Grit, which, uh, you know, yeah. I, I think is is true. I mean, one thing I like about this as a like, quote unquote space Western is that I, I don't really like the space Westerns where they're wearing like cowboy hats and they have like laser six shooters and stuff like that. You know, but I like, you know, this this is a Western just in the sense that it it replicates the same scarcity and desperation and ruthlessness of, of the of the old west without not and not just like you know saloons and that kind of thing yeah i i think the thing that and, and i'll shut up after this but i think the thing that struck me was this idea that these were people out there in the middle of these woods 
and you don't know if there's anyone else, like even just like beyond the next bunch of trees. And so they're walking around with their own motivations. And then all of a sudden, like dudes with guns show up. And, and I felt like that replicated the idea of what it must be, have been like, you know, back in the day where you're just camping in the wilderness and all of a sudden a dude runs, you know, rolls up with his six shooters and wants to rob you and whatever. And, and that actually came across to me really starkly about how, how scary that must be, you know, just to kind of not know what's going to be around the next bend and, and, you know, these lawless men and Pete desperate men, like that's, that was scary to me. Did, did any of you see recently that, um, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, that Netflix movie? Western. I saw parts of it. Well, there, I mean, it's sort of an anthology movie, but one of the segments of that um, is exactly what you're describing. It's an old prospector out in the sort of unspoiled West uh, in the middle of the mountains looking, you know, he has these elaborate systems for finding gold deposits in the, in the, uh, in the hills. And uh, sure enough, you think he's out there in the middle of nowhere and someone with a gun shows up. There's a lot of similarities, actually, with... Uh, with this movie. And maybe it's just that I saw these two in, in close proximity to each other, but yeah, you know, but for the setting, they, they could almost be sort of uh, different variations on the, on the theme. I haven't seen the ballad of Buster Scruggs. I didn't actually even know it was an anthology. So that makes me a little more interested in watching it. Um, yeah. How about Sarah? What did you think of the, the sort of, of this as a space Western? I feel like the similarities or the comparison comes from, if you wanted to create a Western at all, whether it's a space Western or not, you combine kind of this unforgiving landscape with, uh, you know, a sense of desperation and you put a, uh, you know, the pursuit of a valuable object in there, whatever it is, and the lawlessness that comes from that of, you know, just not having enough bodies to patrol the place, not having any system or infrastructure in space in, in place. Um, and that automatically, you know, has given birth to so many stories. Uh, so yeah, I, I completely agree with that as well as, you know, understood the, on, you asked the other day on the Geeks Galaxy Facebook page where you had it. One of somebody, I, I forget who, but somebody mentioned Kurosawa. Uh, and that rung very true for me in terms of feeling like a Kurosawa film and just feeling like these people are just sort of roving around and there's no sense of, you know, overall justice or a system in place. And that creates a lot of the tension that makes these things work. You know, you're just like, uh, like you feel really vulnerable for the characters. You feel like they're really exposed, like, you know, anything could happen at any moment. And that's a very cool, you know, sort of a way to give birth to a genre. Well, and, and there's very famously a lot of similarities between samurai movies and Westerns to the extent that they're often made into one another, you know, like remade as, right. as one or right. the other. Um, and I thought this was interesting because it's a, it's a Western that's not in a desert landscape, you know, which would be a lot more familiar. I mean, that's kind of like what mm -hmm. Tatooine is in uh, A New Hope, right? But what this is, this is a Western in a dense rainforest, which is kind of a, an interesting twist. Yeah, and you get the sense that they, you know, if they took off their helmets, they all couldn't breathe. They could barely breathe as it was, even with all of the equipment that they had. And so that was really a well-done way of making the overall environment, you know, kind of the predator in 
you know, because otherwise it's a sort of man versus man story, right? But you have this planet that, while beautiful, and even it looks like Earth, it looks like a, you know, forest on Earth, it's this toxic forest environment. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things it does really well, is that from the very beginning that they hit the planet, there's this sense that their time is limited. You know, they have these filters and they have to be scrubbed and... You know, that's, I think, what sets up the tension with the father and the daughter because she, she's worried about getting back out. And he's like, we have to do this thing. And you know that the time is limited. And will he jeopardize their return trip or, you know, their filters or whatever to get what he wants? And I think that that from the beginning being set up was just so strong. And then later on, they just continue to reinforce that. Um, and just like you said, you know, it's a beautiful looking forest. But just the simple effect that they do with that dust floating around makes it feel alien. Mm. Um, and, and can I just say how nice it is to watch a science fiction movie where the characters keep their helmets on in a dangerous <laughs> atmosphere? <laughs> right. Like every, like every science fiction movie or, or like so many science fiction movies, you know, they just can't wait to, for the characters to take their helmets off, you know, at the drop of a hat or the drop of a helmet or something. But, uh, but yeah, and it was interesting because I listened to the, um, the directors talking and they said that, you know, that, that, that was always a complaint they had is like, why do the characters take their helmets off? It makes no sense. We're, our characters are going to keep their helmets on. And then they realized trying to film it, why everyone always takes their helmets off because you can see everything reflected in Reflection. the visor and it makes it almost impossible to, you know, put a camera in somebody's face because then you can just see the camera person standing there in the reflection. Well, these helmets were very dirty, so that must have helped. Like, seriously, the, the aesthetic of the analog, you know, spaceship with all of the little buttons and everything's filthy is such a, like, I don't know whether it's, it's like nostalgic of the films we all grew up with in mm-hmm. like the 80s, but, you know, to me that feels so much more real. I love a, a clean, sparkly sh- spaceship, don't you know, but it, it's just something really magical about that that kind of environment and where everything feels like it's it could fall apart at any moment. Yeah, how about Chris, what do you think of what you think of the analog technology? Yeah, I, I I basically agree with everything she just said. I I I it did not bother me in you know in another in other movies it might have felt like oh well, they just didn't have a budget or oh they you know this this movie obviously hasn't aged well if it was an older movie, but here it, it was very purposely done, I think. And it was, I I think the fact that everything was in such a state of disrepair and dirtiness and whatever made it, made it work in a way that, um, you know, maybe just having it analog on its own wouldn't have, but it looked like it was some sort of aging technology within this wider society. So I really liked it. I read a thing where I, I I read a few things just before this podcast just to see what people were saying about it. And somebody was like, it, it, it takes place in sort of like an alternate reality where, you know, the sixties technology kind of persisted. And I didn't see it that way at all. I saw it as like, you know, how like when I was growing up, there'd be people who would assemble their own like radios, ham radios using like circuits and stuff. And there's always people who put together old cars. I felt like it was that level of technology where I'm sure that there are flashy, like digital holographic spacecraft out there in this world. But like these people can only afford to kind of cobble together what they can cobble together. And the technology is, you know, ubiquitous enough that it, you know, that, that 
that anyone can do it really, um, as long as you have the parts and maybe they scrounge for them for years. And I, I that's what I loved. Um, and I yeah, think there's some class spaceships. Yeah. And there's something about the analog stuff that I don't know. There's something about a clunk and somebody flipping a switch that translates so much differently than them hitting a display and having a CGI like thing filled in later. Um, not, not that CGI hasn't progressed to a point where like panels don't work, but there's maybe it's my age, but there's something about flipping a switch and like, you know, plugging a module in that just feels real to me. Well, again, feedback. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think this is an example where, the, the science fiction served the movie really well because some of that analog technology really upped the tension, like with the guns needing to be recharged. I mm-hmm. mean, if this was like, you know, Star Wars technology where there were lasers shooting every which direction, it wouldn't have had nearly as much tension. I mean, the fact that you, you know, you, you would charge your gun up and you can maybe get one or two shots off before having to recharge it. That was like a huge plot element in several scenes. And, and I think that also really upped the tension throughout it. Yeah. And if, if I could just say, like, I think that the violence in this movie is never, it's never glorified for sure. But like, you know, some, some sci-fi movies, there'll be like a battle or even Westerns, there'll be like, you know, the gunfight across the thing. And every time there was any violence that happened, it was like desperate and frantic and people were trying to get the shots off. And it was like, everyone seemed scared. And I loved that, you know, like I, I loved that it seemed dangerous and scary. Um, and not like this, I don't know, actiony movie type thing um, that made it also feel real to me. Mm-hmm. Let me also just say, I mean, the, this is another the junky, the sort of junky technology is another thing that kind of makes me think of Tatooine in Star Wars: mm. A New Hope. And I just think that you know, you wouldn't necessarily think that you could do a like space opera, space adventure kind of movie on a low budget. And I think this movie really shows how you can. And one of the ways is to have the characters be, you know, like sort of lower class, working class people who are using this sort of older rundown technology. Uh, and they're kind of out in the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it's all dirty and everything. Um, but then they create such an, an amazing sense of a um, of a wider universe by having them talk about all these other things that are going on. And you don't have to show it on screen. You can just have these characters in their spacesuits talking and like in – a new hope, you know, just the characters talking can create such a mythology. Um, even if you're just out in the, out in the desert, out in, out in the rainforest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, so let's talk. So, uh, yeah, Sarah spoiled this a little bit, but so, uh, so <laughs> as, as it develops, they're, uh, they're prospecting for these gems and, um, C has gone off to, um, to refill her canteen or something. And oh, and also the they have they all communicate by radios, which was kind of a, a nice touch since they're all you know in, in these helmets. Um, but so she hears over the radio that her dad has been accosted by like bandits, basically. And uh, and so he tells her to uh, to to get the gun and to to follow them and to uh, when sort of when he makes his move to back him up. And uh, this this would have worked, but he got greedy and then tried to steal these bandits' gems. And this leads to a shootout in which uh, her father dies, and this one of the bandits dies, who's this really creepy yeah, guy. Yeah. Uh, he's just very large and silent, and in this weird-looking helmet. And I thought it was just amazing how intimidating intimidating that character was. You know, 
never speaking or really doing much of anything, just looming there. Yeah, he was like a total enigma. It wasn't even entirely clear to me whether he was biological or an android or something, because you just had no idea what the heck he was. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where the helmets work in their favor, because they just put like an opaque kind of crazy looking helmet on someone and they look like yeah. something out of, you know, Mad Max or something like that. So. Yeah. I mean, I thought he was a person, cause he, or at least biological, because he had the same, you know, tubes and breathing apparatus, it seems. Right, I guess he probably was, then, or some sort of hybrid, or or if he, uh, yeah, uh, some kind of mutant type thing. You just had no idea what he was under the suit. I mean, he was, you know, the fact, just the fact that he didn't speak made him so mysterious. You know? Right, but there is a lot of stuff, as, as, as I don't want to get too far ahead, but there is a lot of stuff in this universe that we just don't know. So, I mean, he could, who knows what he could be. I mean, sure. and I, I guess that's one of the things that, you know, that I loved about the movie, but I think that this is maybe going to appeal more to hardcore science fiction fans than just the general audience, is that so much of the dialogue is more or less gibberish. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's sort of like technical stuff. And uh, stuff about the world building, which is all like a complete, as you say, a complete enigma to the audience. Um, but uh, Sarah, Sarah, what did you think about that? What did you think about the? Uh, did you feel that the dialogue was? Uh, th- did it work for you? How kind of oblique it was? Well, I feel like this is one of those examples of the power of underexplaining rather than explaining poorly. If you decide that you're going to explain how something in world works, then suddenly you're limited to the rules of physics, you're limited to comparisons and other science fiction. But to leave it an enigma is, I think, very powerful in a genre where imagination is supposed to be the driver of the audience. And in terms of how it it, you know, sort of has wide appeal, I think the I think the thing that makes it most, you know, or has most uh, more commercial, uh, what's the word, potential than anything, is the fact that it's a pretty awesome character drama. It's a very sparse thing, mm-hmm. very minimal, you know, it's, it doesn't have a lot of the trappings of science fiction, where there's just new technology everywhere, um, and that need to explain. It's very like a, it feels like a small play. The character development for, especially given how little dialogue there is, is really uh, phenomenal. I mean, you really care about this girl and really like her and you get that she's a survivor. And none of that is done in a tropey way. It's all very genuine. Um, so I feel like this has broader appeal, um, you know, with the right marketing. And another thing that I think was really good that that gave it more appeal is the the soundtrack is great like it it you know given the budget i I wasn't expecting that um Mm. and the 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 soundtrack's really beautiful and haunting and it really provides a sense of atmospheric you know tension that that stories like this thrive on so i was very impressed yeah i mean when the um uh, when the father, uh, Damon dies, there's this amazing, just sort of female vocal, you know, sort of ethereal kind of musical track playing, um, uh, yeah. that I just thought was, yeah, so effective. Um, yeah. So, so let's, let's get into, so Pedro Pascal. So Pedro Pascal, who you may recognize as Oberyn Martell from Game of Thrones. 
uh, he is the surviving bandit. And so basically he and C have to throw in together if they're going to survive. And uh, you can definitely see why they cast him for this part, because like Oberyn Martell, this this character, uh, Ezra, um, is very charming and very dangerous at the same time. And Pedro Pascal is just like the perfect actor <laughs> to play that part. Yeah, he I mean, he really is. It's almost like he's, uh, you know, it's like I don't want to I don't want to say that he's typecast because that's almost has a negative connotation but he just does that so well um whether it's as ober and martell or in this movie or i i thought he was phenomenal in narcos he plays uh agent pena in that and and in all three of those roles he's and and this is true for all the char- all the main characters in this film whether it's the father or him or anyone it, it, he's so he's such a morally ambiguous character um the fact that he is so charismatic uh, uh as an actor, I think allows him to do this so well. But, um, you know, in, in all of those, those, uh, venues, the characters that he plays, you know, he walks a very fine line between bad guy and good guy. And, um, but he pulls it off in a way that the audience, you know, you're just captivated by him when he's on screen and you're very easily won over to his side, even though, you know, you initially view him as the enemy. And uh, he just he, he does that amazingly well. I agree with you about the moral ambiguity, definitely, and his char- charisma and his skill. I think the difference between him and Ober and Martel for me is that Ober and Martel, you know, definitely was charming, definitely had this sense of conviction and purpose that I think Ezra like he seems so world weary and so kind of broken down and his his moral ambiguity comes from circumstance and how he's had to kind of thread this line of staying alive um and you know i mean definitely he does a great job with that i mean i just the, just the different like kind of phases that you see the character go through and like how he kind of weighs out what makes sense and and what to do. And also he gets beaten to shit in this movie. So, um, it's kind of, it's, he, he does a great job. I mean, I I definitely agree, but I, I, I see Ezra as this kind of ultimately sympathetic character because you, you kind of, even though he doesn't talk about what he's been through over his life, like you get the sense that it's been pretty hard all the way through and he's just been trying to do his best to get by. That's at least what I got. Yeah, he actually he reminded me a lot of um, the George Clooney character in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where he he talks in this sort of like overly elaborated, poetic, hmm. kind of fast talking way. And he's always scheming and the schemes often don't work out really. Um, so he's sort of like that if that character were more, uh, you know, more of a criminal, like even more of a criminal. Also, the scene, it, I hope I'm not jumping too far ahead, but the scene with his arm, like. I I just love the way he played that. Like it was just so uh, both of them. I think in that one scene, like if I'm imagining, I probably haven't seen too many scenes about someone having their arm cut off, but it was just, I thought it was just so good. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is jumping a little farther ahead than I want. Cause I do want to talk about the part where um, before we get to the arm cutting off uh, he, yeah. So, so she shot him in the course of this and now he's got an infected arm and he wants to get some juice to, uh, you know, to try to disinfect it. And so they have to deal with this. It's like it's basically like a cult was the right. sense I got. Um, 
But uh, I don't know what Sarah. What did you think of the uh, of this the sort of weird religious community that they come across? Always asking me about <laughs> the weird religious cults. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it was definitely the most terrifying part of that world for me because you could tell that you know whether people set out you know to uh, to become prospectors or what and kind of got stuck in survival cycles and lost their minds at some point. Um, you know, you you never have any sense of how many people in total are on this world. But the idea of people being there for untold amounts of time and just getting weirder and weirder as isolation sets in, you know, is super successfully creepy. And, you know, for them to be interested in her as an object that they could trade was horrifying and she knew that immediately and knew to run the fuck out of there and it's interesting that they did not show um you know the guy what his decision would have been so you kind of have to take him at his word later on when she asks him like would you have sold me to them i thought it was so striking when you know as i'm watching that scene i'm like oh my god you know in my immediate impulse was no you have to um you know prevail on ezra like no save me save me and she just like books it out of there and i was like <laughs> wow i would not even have had the presence of mind to do that but you know yep. um but this is we, we we start to see just the you know as the movie progresses just the more and more how resourceful and um you know self-possessed um c is yeah that, that I mean, scene was was done so well because Repeatedly throughout that scene, before you even realize, before they drop the the, the bomb of "well, we want her," um, it, they would occasionally keep panning back over to the corpse lying in the corner of the mother, and you were yeah. like, "Yeah, this is something's not good here. Like, why is there a corpse in the corner, and what is this portending?" Um, and and just everything in that in that scene. I mean, the the young son was so effectively creepy, <laughs> just. He doesn't ever speak, I don't think, but he just, he has this, this look on him that, I mean, I got the sense, it's funny that, by the way, that you describe it as a weird religious community, because I didn't, I didn't pick up on that, or I, it, to me, I didn't interpret it as some sort of a cult, so much as they were just kind of survivalists, like people who had adapted to the environment, and either for economic reasons, like they had no means to get off the planet, or whatever reason they, they had adapted to living there and develop, you know, developed this sort of weird culture around it. Um, but uh, yeah. Well, I mean, well it, let me pick up on that. I mean, I didn't necessarily pick up on this to a very strong extent the first time I watched the movie, but on, on the second viewing, you know, um, Ezra refers to them as quote, religious settlers. Oh, and did he? Okay. The, the, their leader or the father or whatever, he, he gives this sort of speech about how he came to this place as a, um, prospector but then he kind of you know saw the spirit or experienced the spirit and you know found his true purpose and you know fate has brought you here and you know it is it is sort of maybe more on second on second viewing it, it comes through pretty clearly i think that okay. they are plus anytime you have a group of people who are interested in trading women as cattle <sighs> you know that religion's gonna come into it <laughs> What I like about that scene is that I feel like, so we talked about science fiction, we talked about Westerns. To me, this starts kind of what 
I think of as the kind of apocalypse now element of the movie, or, or if you want to go back to heart of darkness or whatever, where, you know, those movies, the further they go down the river, the stranger and kind of more threatening things become. And I think this was where, you know, it, it was always a dangerous planet and we saw a lot of bad stuff happen already, but then this is where the weirdness kind of comes in. And I, I love that because as it, the movie goes on and I won't spoil what happens later, but there's stuff that gets even weirder. And, and I, I love that element of it. Well, right. Cause it starts out with these bandits that you can bargain with. And as it goes on, you, you get, you know, characters who are more and more, you know, difficult to, to placate, you know? And, and I mean, I guess part of that is that they've been down there for so long. And so they've kind of lost touch with mm-hmm. themselves, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Didn't, don't they say like you've been in the green too long several times? Yeah. 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 I think that's, I like that. I really like that observation though. The sort of heart of darkness observation. Um, all right. So then let's see what happens next. So, um, uh, oh yeah. So then we get to the arm cutting off. Uh, does anyone have, uh, Chris, what, do you have anything else to add about the arm cutting off? No, I mean, I, I agree. It was just, it was really, really harrowing. I mean, it was amazingly well done. Uh, the, the acting by both of them, the, the sort of, you keep expecting, um, uh, C to sort of like flinch or lose it. And then mm-hmm. the fact that she's just such, you know, cool as a cu- cucumber throughout it, you're just like, Oh wow. Like this, that's an unexpected response. And then when he, you know, um, when, uh, Peter Pascal, uh, Ezra even notices that and says to her, like, man, you, you've done this before I take it. Her answer is amazing. The fact yeah. that she had crawled down the gullets of some sorts of creatures to extract, I guess, I don't know if it was the same, uh, gemstones she was talking about or some other type of creature in another no no she was good she was like getting their organs she says right okay so i mean she she was you know that whole explanation itself just adds so much to her her character you realize man she has had a messed up childhood (laughs) right Right. it illuminates that relationship with her dad even further yeah um and and also okay well i just uh wanted to mention that that's something that historically we have made children do. Mm-hmm. And I wondered whether that was, uh, an, you know, allusion to that or not. Like, you know, the, the Puritans who were whalers in New England, for instance, would send, uh, young boys, nine, ten years old inside the cavities of whales to collect like the ambergris mm-hmm. and the descriptions of, you know, how long it would take them to get clean after after being coated in you know this whale oil and how completely disgusting and hellish i mean this was you know literally a description in moby dick of this happening um and so you know it's not far off from reality if you have a civilization that is harvesting you know body parts in these massive creatures uh, you're going to send small children inside to collect them. Yeah, and it sets up this idea of an ecology of people harvesting stuff from living beings, um, alien beings in various forms, which is a pretty bleak, I think, thing. I mean, I think we've, we, as a, as a global society, I think we've gotten away from that, even though people still kill whales for their blubber and people still collect, you know, rhinoceros horn and ivory and stuff. It's, it's largely been, pushed to the fringes at least um and is most of the time punished and stuff so so like the fact that this is happening in this world not only 
makes it more of a throwback to those older times, but also just, it seems like a terrible world. You know, I don't know, to me, maybe because I'm more of a animal person, but like, just the thought of them doing all these things to these creatures, you know, who may be peaceful, it seems terrible. Right. Let me also just say, I think, you know, mentioning child labor, you know, that that strikes me as sort of an interesting contrast with the Phantom Menace, right, where you have these kids and they're like, we're slaves, but we race pods and build robots and stuff. And, you know, it, there, it has no sense of like dramatic seriousness to it or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or anything at all. And, and you know, in, in this, just like this one brief snippet of conversation, uh, you know, captures so much more. Of of the, of that kind of yeah like the of how difficult this life has been for her yeah uh, all right so let's see so oh I also wanted to say so um you know throughout almost the entire movie you know it's just like one awful thing happening to see after another and she's just sort of like you know has this sort of like stony expression and you know is just like so un, you know un, unhappy uh, you know for obvious reasons but um. Around this time, there's this part where uh, she's been writing in her book and um, and Ezra asks her, like, what are you writing? And she talks about how she's how she had this favorite novel that she would read over and over again and she lost it. And so she's just been sort of making a new version of it as best as she can from memory. And just the way that her face comes alive when she talks about mm-hmm. that was just so moving to me. And it just made me love this character so much. I mean, one of my hobbies is like copying out books that I like. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I connected with that. But uh, it was just, you know, in this, um, you know, story where it's just so brutal and she's so, you know, just put upon for the whole movie. Just seeing that moment of her just glowing with passion was just, you know, it just like juxt- that juxtaposition was just so powerful to me. Yeah. Yeah. If you take this, what she said about crawling into the creature and then that speech about the book that she loved. I mean, those that pretty much tells you what you need to know about the character. I mean, obviously there's more to it than that, but I mean, I think that those were both really illuminated, illuminating moments that didn't really, I mean, I guess they're technically exposition, but the way, you know, there, there's not a lot of like flat exposition in this, which I loved because I feel like science fiction, anything often relies upon that too much. Um, but those moments were like character moments, which I think worked really well for me. So. And I also think what made that particularly poignant, too, was that um, now, you know, again, there was a lot of information being given to us very quickly there because she was speaking very animatedly about it, too. So maybe I missed something. But but I love the fact that what was getting her so enthused and and excited and and like smiling and, and, and sort of happy for the first time in the film is, you know, it's not like she's describing this, you know, shoot them up space opera or some sort of thing about spies or about, you know, cowboys. She's talking about a story about kids who I believe are just like going to school together. And it kind of was made it even more poignant that it's just like, yeah, wow. She's describing the life that most kids, you know, should have probably had rather than being forced down the gullet of beasts, you know? (laughs) Um, And, and that made it even more poignant that she was just like dreaming of this like amazing world that she liked to escape to that, that, you know, her escape was what would be, you would think of what, you know, would be an appropriate childhood for, 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 for right. a, it's person. a home and, and like yeah. a, and stability, right? So. Yeah, exactly. Well, but I mean, I mean, she says that, yeah, the, she's, I mean, we don't hear much about what the book right. is about. It's called like the streamer girl or something like that. 
But it, yeah. and, and she mentions there's like two characters and um, they're at some sort of um, academy or something. And right, then right. she's about to say, I think, that they have a romantic relationship with each other and then she kind of gets cut off. Um, but I mean, it could be like a Harry Potter kind of story where they're at a right. school and having all sorts of like adventures and, things. and adventures and things. We don't really know, but... But yeah, she doesn't. But she doesn't even really talk about that. It's more just talking. You know, like the, what she chose to say, uh, I think was was telling that that she's only really talking about the fact that they are these kids at the school. Yeah, I also kind of love that Ezra doesn't piss on that. You know, like yes. he basically like I th- because I, I take it as like her enthusiasm kind of infects him, and he's like, oh, that's really amazing. Rather than you know, I think the stereotypical response to be like, well, that's dumb or whatever. You never get there or whatever he's going to say. You know, so. Um, it's interesting cause you talked, you talked about Game of Thrones and I was thinking that their relationship in some ways is similar and, and Chris, I think you're, you're not caught up on the TV show, but I don't think this is a spoiler because it was in the books, but like, um, Arya and the Hound kind of similar, yeah. although the Hound is way more crude and, and dangerous, but that, that initial, like her dad's dead, she's on her own. She throws in with a guy who kind of could have killed her in the beginning so it was like that kind of interesting relationship. Although, again, in Game of Thrones, the Hound would have would have told her she was dumb for liking a novel. And I think that I liked that moment so much that that he was just really kind of tickled by by that whole idea about her even like writing it down. So well, I feel like she recognizes throughout the film by the end, you know, that he was, you know kind of a better character than her dad. <laughs> um, you know, it's a low bar, uh, but she comes back for him and, you know, I'm not trying to jump too far again, but, you know, the, the guy is overall more likable than her dad and way more complicated morally. Um, so between them, I would also, you know, hitch my uh, wagon to that one. So so by the time we get to that scene where she's amputated his arm and she's telling him about her favorite book and he's, you know, they're sort of bonding over that, Were you was everyone confident at that point that he was a good guy or did anyone have any sort of residual apprehension that he was going to betray her at the end? Well, I feel like we, we know that um, – I don't think that we ever really fully trusted him. I think that residual apprehension – lasted throughout the entirety of the film but i think that's partly what contributed to this tension you know and made it a success as you kind of want her to have somebody else to you know genuinely take care of her and she's not going to have that but the guy did have just enough redeeming qualities to be a very complex character who was capable of, you know, helping her out of this and being a, a reliable partner. I think by the time he lost his arm, I felt like he needed her definitely. And so it was kind of, you know, it hitched his wagon to that train. But um, the one thing I've, I think the moment that I, that I believed was when she said, would you have sold me to those people? And he said, no, I believed him, you know, like maybe I shouldn't have, but I did. And that's, yeah. I think, when my opinion changed. Well, I mean, I agree that we don't ever really know what he would have done, but just the way he responds, you know, they're like, here's like a fortune for the girl. And he says, that's a bold offer. And it it seems like he could have just easily said like, okay, you know, I mean, like, I I thought it was sort of strongly set set up that he, he was not. I think that scene and then one that comes up later, 
which we'll get to, I guess, at the, the dig site, um, sh- to me shows him in contrast with the dad, who I think would have possibly, you know, dad was looking for as much as he could get. And this guy seems to be like, well, I'll take less if I can get what I need. You know what I mean? If I can do, you know, I, I, he, he's not looking to kind of take advantage of anyone as much as he's looking to just get by, I think, without kind of causing any major damage. Yeah, um, I could actually see the dad selling her to those people. So. I, I can see the dad <laughs> thinking about it. I don't know a drug addict, but... <laughs> <laughs> Although I do think that, I mean, we, we only see the dad for so little. So, you know, obviously there could be more to their relationship and what he thinks. But, um, I think in what we've seen that I agree that, that, you know, Ezra seems fairer when it comes to some of these things. Well, but and honestly, I think Ezra seemed fair when he was trying to make, I mean, they were trying to kind of horn in on a deal through violence in the beginning, but like he, he wasn't, I don't think it was a completely like raw deal. They were kind of, you know, teaming up in a way and, and the dad kind of pressed the issue. Right. But I, I mean, I, th- I feel like we're being a little hard on the dad, but I, I do feel like from just a, a structural st- story standpoint, it's a story about someone who doesn't have a dad and like acquires a dad through the course yeah. of the story. And so for that to work, you know, the dad does have to be, you know, exceed a certain threshold of badness uh at the beginning yeah well i mean he's an anti-hero that's that's like the whole thing now <laughs> uh, chris what do you what do you make of all this no i mean i yeah i i basically just agree um i think uh i i think by the end i'm not sure at what point it happened but i think by the certainly by the end of the film or by about three quarters of the way through i guess uh i I felt like we could trust that he wasn't going to out and out betray her or, or sell her, you know, to save his own skin. I, I felt like they had bonded enough and he had enough of a sort of personal code of honor. Um, even if he was a thief, you know, uh, but I felt like he, he would have tried to even risk his own, uh, life for her at a, at a certain point in, in, in the, uh, in the movie, I felt like I had come to feel that way about him. Yeah. All right. Well, so let's talk about the, so they, they get to this dig site where there are a bunch of mercenaries and they've discovered like the mother load of alien gems. Um, but they need someone who can cut them open without destroying them. And so Ezra is going to pose as C's dad, uh, and, um, you know, help them do this. And then hopefully they're going to, use these mercenaries ship to, to get back to the, or, you know, like a lander thing to get back to the, the starship. And up to this point in the story, I thought that this movie was, you know, like quite good. Uh, you know, I, I was really engaged by it. I thought it was excellent, but like this sequence just blew me away. This whole, just like on a, just on a sheerly visual level, I, I just could not believe how awesome it looked. Um, and, and to, to Raj's thing about apocalypse now, I mean, we're really into just like hallucinogenically weird, like gonzo fricking, like when you see the, um, so these, these mercenaries, they have this prisoner who's in this cage. It's sort of a, like a telephone booth thing. And he's all covered in some sort of pink dust or something. And it's just so weird and intriguing. And yeah, I was just captivated. Um, when we get to this part of the movie. 
Uh, Raj, what did you share my? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think they use darkness really well because, you know, up until then they had been going through the forest with some light and then they get to the dig site. It's completely dark. These guys are walking around. The mercs are walking around with, you know, more intimidating um, suits than some of the ones we've seen. The weird guy in the glass case um, and that woman who can like broadcast crazy music through their their helmets, I guess. Um to kind of disrupt them and, and cover what they're saying. I mean, like that whole thing, it was just little kind of dreamlike, but not really dreamlike, more nightmare-like in a way. Um, and so, it, you know, you, I feel like my hackles were already up, felt dangerous, you know, are they going to take these people out? Then they go to, to deal with them. Um, and that's why, like, I think when Ezra, so Ezra basically says, hey, we'll, we'll do what we agreed to do, but we also need to get a ride out of here because we lost our ship. And, you know, they, the mercs are like, no. And he's like, I'll even take less of a share of what we're getting to get out of here. And like constantly just pushes, you know, back. Um, and that's the point at which I was like, okay. Cause like, he's not concerned with, I mean, they're already, you know, he already says like what they're collecting theoretically from this dig site is, is going to be like more than any of them could ever imagine. So, you know, taking some off the top to get a ride back is, is not a big deal, but he doesn't back down. And I, I kind of really appreciate that because, you know, I think that that's, you know, he, he's not interested in sticking around and he wants to get him and see off the planet. Um, and again, I don't see the dad ever making that deal. I see the dad trying to like figure out a way that he could get everything, um, and dragging everyone down with him in that, in that situation. But, but yeah, definitely the, the, the weird kind of creepy psychedelic hallucinogenic quality of that scene w- was amazing. Right. And I feel like this is a place where the, their decision to use helmets in the way that they did really shines, not just in the way that they're like weird. Um, but also like, like there's a shot where, um, the, the female mercenary is kind of like looking around or I, I think that the, the mercenaries are kind of like, talking privately through their radios trying to decide what they're going to do and there are just like moments where the firelight or i don't know i guess it's not fire but like the science fiction fire whatever it is it it causes her whole mass to just be completely covered in light you know Mm. uh, completely masking her face and you just see her face like flickers of her face almost and just just it's just so striking and so unlike anything i've ever seen in a in a movie before whatever effects they used on the helmets and the windows was amazing for such a low budget movie. I mean, I thought all of those scenes looked amazing. What I, another thing I liked about this scene, it gets back to what we were saying earlier, how there's a lot of ambiguity left in, in the film, but it seems very purposeful and not just sort of, Oh, we don't know what to say. So let's just make up some other bit of nonsense. It, because it seems like even though there is this ambiguity, all of the characters in the film seem like they are operating according to a set of, you know, rules about the way that their universe works. And they all know what those rules are, even though we don't necessarily know what they mm-hmm. are. Like, like the, the prisoner, I, you know, unless I misunderstood this, it's, I, I thought what I got from the scene was that even the Mercs didn't know exactly what his crime was or why he was there. Like he was, someone had been, he had been sent to them to like watch him or something mm-hmm. like, and so it's just like, they were they were a little bit confused about why it had happened, but there was obviously enough of a, a level of hierarchy in place that it was like, yeah, but hey, the hires up told us that we got to keep an eye on this guy. I mean, it just it just was 
so crazy and so um, disconcerting. And and by the way, I, like I interpreted, maybe this was me just filling in blanks, but I interpreted the. I didn't interpret it as pink dust on him. I thought it was that he had been exposed to the atmosphere, and that was the reaction his skin was having to it, and that was the torture or the punishment that had been imposed upon him. Was that you have to sit in this box, um, and basically let this planet destroy you oh you're you're absolutely right because because um pedro pascal mentions like something about the i'm infected with the pink or something like that yes right? yes so i i think that's what was going on with with him and it it again just highlighted uh as sarah mentioned earlier the the, the how the environment was another uh, uh villain in this movie yeah, you're absolutely right, because I didn't make that connection, but because on the second viewing, they explain basically that it's like tradition to execute people in this way. Right, okay. And the, the mercs don't really, they're like, we just do what we're told, like, whatever, if they, if they want to pay us, we'll do it. Yeah. Um, I guess the sort of the one, the one big question I had at the end is how did the, how did that prisoner get out of his cell? I felt like that was not really explained. I don't know if, if, if I just missed something. I just I miss- gathered that he was in there through intimidation, you know, that if he tried to leave, they'd shoot him, but that it wouldn't be terribly difficult to get out. Hmm. Is that, I mean, the only thing, there's like a, like a split second shot where you, at the end where you see that there are, I think that you can see that there are bullet holes in his cell. So maybe, you know, just in the, sh- in the shootout, the cell was damaged to an extent that he was able to bust out of it. But I, I felt like that could have been maybe a little bit more explicit. What was what had happened there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure either, but I, I didn't mind too much. I kind of could like figure again that it might have gotten hit, or he figured a way out, or something like that. Yeah, just something in the confusion led to his his escape. You know, whether it was accidental or purposeful on his part, taking advantage of something. Yeah, and the gu- the guns were really cool too. I mean. Um, I mean, one of them is described as being a rail gun, but you know they they seem to shoot some sort of. I wasn't clear. They they seem to shoot some sort of fairly fast moving projectile. Um, but it seems to I don't know. It seems it doesn't seem to be bullets, but it seems to be something longer and glowier. Um, yeah. but but not quite. I don't know. It's I guess it's similar to the blasters in Star Wars, but but for whatever reason, the aesthetics of it, they just felt a lot more dangerous and. You know, I don't know. A lot more cool, I guess. It felt a little more low tech to me, and and I, I mean, when he he calls what they have, at least what C and Damon have, a, a thrower, and it reminded me of um, in some of the old science fiction RPGs I used to play when I was younger. You know, you'd have lasers and blasters and whatever, and then you'd have slug throwers, which were basically like anachronistic pistols, you know, that shot bullets or whatever projectiles. Um, so I figured it was stuff like that, maybe shot with some kind of gas or or whatever but um but in that environment i mean all you need to do is puncture somebody's skin and suit to give them a problem that they're going to have to deal with um some of them look to be more like explosive i wasn't really sure but i loved the fact that they seemed um so brutal i guess you know yeah um yeah i don't know so anyone else have any uh, any thoughts about these uh these characters. I'm just or this? surprised that uh, that no one's mentioned alien yet, because I feel like if there was an existing science fiction world that this could take place in, like in the same world, it would be alien. 
Hmm. And part of it is that, you know, you get the sense from Alien that because it's still very much a capitalist society, that there are different levels of tech for different social classes. And, you know, you could just see this happening in that universe. Um, and a lot of the aesthetics were very similar. So as an Alien fan, I appreciated that. Yeah, I, there, there's no question that there's a huge Alien influence. I was actually thinking how I would describe this movie is it's like the props of Alien, the plot of True Grit. I mean, not literally, but that kind of story and the world building of Star Wars A New Hope. Um hmm. Those seem to me to be the, sort of the major threads coming together in this movie. Yeah. Um, was there anything else that anyone, any other influences that sort of stood out to people? I guess I'll mention also um, Firefly. There was yeah. a little bit of a, yeah, yeah. I guess it, it's because of the um, the sort of space western with Asian inf- mm. inspired culture, like pop culture. Like she has this like I, I don't remember like. Maybe it's her T-shirt or, or there just seems to be sort of like anime-ish kind of, mm-hmm. you know, little characters around in the in the background. Yeah, little stickers and things that, that, are, that she has on, you know, the wall next to her. Yeah. I guess, I mean, just from listening to interviews with the directors, it sounds like they did a ton of world building for this. They were talking about figuring out the economics of everything and... Um, yeah, like her, she has some, it's sort of, I don't know if you looked at it very carefully, but it's some sort of cartoon tardigrade on her, um, (laughs) t-shirt at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they said that they actually figured out like what the whole show is and what the other characters are and stuff, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. I guess cause, cause, you know, they said that, you know, it took them years to get funding for this. So, you know, they would go in and they were pitching it and then getting turned down and then they would kind of rework the script and rework the pitch and everything and go and do it again. And so they really they said that they're kind of in the end, they're, even though that was stressful, that they're glad in the end that that's how it worked out because it gave them a lot of time to, um, you know, to to fine tune everything. It's also I'm looking of- forward. Oh, I was going to say I'm looking forward to whatever they do next. I'm just I'm a little concerned that if they get a bigger budget and Hollywood backing that like some of this stuff will get lost because I think they did an amazing job with the budget that they had in creating a world that felt real. And I'm sure a lot of that came from the restrictions that they had, you know, oh, we have to figure out ways to to kind of keep it tight. And, you know, um, mostly it was through suits and a little bit of the overlay of the dust and things like that. But like, I don't know, like, I'm sure that that helped push them into some really exciting directions. Whereas, you know, suddenly you're given a, you know, $50 million budget, or I don't even know how much money goes into those big uh, sci-fi movies or whatever, but like, you know, then you're just like, oh, look, we can play with all this stuff. But I wonder if having such limits helped to make this so tight. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, they did say that they ha- are doing a science fiction series for Amazon oh, wow. uh, for their next project. Um the director or one of the guys said it lean quote unquote leans medieval. That's all that they've said about mm. it. Um, it's kind of interesting too, because from a production standpoint, you know, they're, they're in Seattle. And so this wasn't made in LA or, you know, or one of the other sort of standard filmmaking hubs, you know? And so they had to um, have all the props and everything made by friends and, you know, just whoever they could find. And so all the props in this movie were not made by people who typically make props for movies. They're, people who makes real stuff, you know, like the guns were made by a guy who makes guns and, um, and things like that. And so 
they were saying that usually, you know, the the prop makers will ask you, you know, like how close is this thing going to be to the camera or are you going to see the back of it or whatever? And they won't do any more work than they have to because um, mm-hmm. if it's not going to show up on camera, why bother? But since none of these people were prop makers, you know, they just made everything as if it was a real object. So everything had all sorts of details that, you know, you would never see on film. But, uh, you know, to the extent they actually had some sort of like um, art show or something where you could go and look at the props because they're also <laughs> detailed and amazing. Um, all right, cool. Any, uh, oh, let me read some, some comments. I think we've pretty much covered most of this stuff. I mean, I thought it was interesting. I got this comment from Laurie Greasley. Uh, he says, I worked on this as concept artist. I've been a listener of Geek's Guide for a number of years, so I'm very excited to hear this episode. So just want to give a shout out to, to Laurie Greasley. Um, and he's an amazing artist. Uh, he did this piece of art called uh, The Raid 2 Incident on Line 13. Uh, it was done with another artist, Josen Gonzalez. But it, there's like a hundred characters from fantasy and science fiction movies and video games and stuff, uh, all in this one giant, you know, canvas. So mm-hmm. everyone definitely go check that out. I assume that's the one you sent us. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I said. Yeah, you. that was amazing. <laughs> it's sort of like the a level of work involved. Like I went to art school, so whenever I see something like that, <laughs> I immediately am like, oh my god, the hours, hours <laughs> involved. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of a where it's like where's Waldo, except everybody's Wal- uh, Waldo. And except mm-hmm. they're all different, you know, science fiction characters. So, yeah. um, but yeah, I don't know. Any other, any other final thoughts, uh, anyone has, uh, Chris, any, uh, any thoughts here at the end? No, I mean, I, I, just cause you mentioned like the art concept and all the rest of it. I, I mean, again, I just, I can't really, I mean, we've said it, but I can't say enough, like visually just how stunning I thought this movie was. And, and, and particularly when you find out that it was done on a low budget, but I mean, it definitely, it felt so rich and so real, like every scene, um, you know, it seemed like, you know, how you, when you talk about like short fiction versus novels, how like in a short story, like almost every word and every sentence has to be doing double and triple duty um, because you have, you know, less space in which to do it. I felt like here, maybe because again, as Roger said, because of the budget, like in every scene, there was so much going on. It was so multi-layered and multifaceted. Um, it just, it looked beautiful and and it really helped to, to bring the story alive. And and I just want to say one last final thing again. I feel like all of that would have still been true and you would have still had a beautifully visually stunning movie in the absence of Pedro Pascal and Sophie Thatcher. But again, I just want to say how I like I almost can't imagine this movie, you know, with different actors in those two roles. Like they did such a phenomenal job bringing these characters alive. And I think in, in the hands of less accomplished actors, um, because it, it required such a level of sort of subtlety, but, but you, without making it too understated. And I thought they both really, really did a, just a tremendous job. Uh, you know, they, yeah. they making this story work. Yeah. I mean, uh, does anyone have, dare I say it, any criticism of this movie? Hmm. No, I mean, I, I, I don't really, I mean, I, you know, I was watching, I rewatched it just, you know, before we started recording this and I was like, I don't think I would change anything about this. I mean, uh, you know, like, especially watching it a second time, you're kind of like, oh, I see why this is the way it is. And this is the way it is. And this has to be there for this and so on. So, yeah, I, I don't think I would change a thing to be honest. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's for everybody, but I mean, I wouldn't change anything either. Oh, I guess we can come back to that. So I was saying that this might appeal more to hard to you know hardcore science fiction fans than to just random audience members. What have... I could see it being perceived as slow moving for people right. who are not used to kind of letting their imagination do the work. Right. Right, and there's not going to be a lot. I mean, a typical movie of any genre, I think they'll they'll kind of halfway through the movie kind of reiterate what's going on to you. Um, usually through clunky exposition. I mean, yep. this isn't that kind of movie. Um, but I would, I would recommend that people give it a shot. I mean, to me, it was, this is the closest uh, of a film I've ever seen that captures the feeling of a good science fiction short story, which I think a lot of people also give short shrift to. Like you said, David, I mean, for fans who, who like that kind of stuff, it'll feel right. But, um, but just, it's a, it's a very human story with, science fiction with a science fictional environment i guess uh setting um and situations that definitely interact with the story but i feel like it's really about the people and uh i think as long as you you focus on that it it, it should be fine hopefully and, and you don't need long bits of exposition i suppose you know obviously you're, you you can find you know everybody has different tastes and for anything out there, you're going to find people who don't like something. But I think anyone who doesn't like this, I don't think it would be because of the science fictional elements. Um, you know, I, I that would that would surprise me. I mean, I think you could maybe, as we said, find some people who, whether this was a science fiction movie or a western or a just you know some other sort of thriller or whatever. Uh, you know, I could see people maybe. Someone might not like the pacing. Someone might not like the characters. Someone might not like this, that, or the other. But I, I don't think I, I would be surprised if someone said, "Oh, I, I couldn't get into it because it was just too weird and the science fiction was just like like mm -hmm. distancing to me." Because I don't feel like it ever it is. I feel like, as Raj has said, and we brought up more than once, I feel like the science fiction always really seems to serve the story here rather than just existing for you know its own sake. Well, but I feel like the thing that might alienate people who aren't into science fiction is not necessarily the science fiction elements per se, but the the dialogue that you can't understand. You know what um, I mean? Like maybe, maybe. You know, I, I could just see see some people just watching and be like, I don't understand what they're talking about. This makes no sense to me. Like I don't like this. You know. Whereas I feel like people who love science fiction are are a lot more, um, you know, receptive to sort of suspending, you know, you're like, I don't understand this, but I'm not supposed to, and I'm okay with that. Um, yeah, I think that is one thing that defines the genre. You have people who have a total willingness to not have every little thing explained. Mm -hmm. And if you go into a, a movie like that, it can be so much more enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to say, I mean, like like Sarah said, I mean, my perception watching it the first time was that it was a little slow moving. I mean, I I loved it, but I, I would have said it was an accurate, uh, you know, it was an accurate observation to say that it was somewhat slow. But this, mm. watching it the second time, I was kind of like, well, I don't know why I thought this was slow. Like, I don't mm. see what you could trim out that would not, you know, that would be an improvement. Um, but I mean, I, I did. I mean, I, I guess I did think that the first time. So I, I think there is maybe something to that. Um, yeah. That comment. I would agree with that. I mean, I think I, I watched it in two chunks because I think I got through the first half roughly and, you know, it was just late. It had been a long day and I'm like, you know, I'm not appreciating this on the level that it needs to be appreciated on. So I'll wait 
till the next day until I feel a bit more refreshed. So I, I don't think it's something you can just put on and sit down and be like, let's check this out. Like, I think you have to be ready to pay attention. Um, but, but yeah, but I think it'll pay off if you do. Yeah. And, and that said, I definitely, I, I was always a, sort of on the edge of my seat. I mean, for as slow as things were, it was always sort of a slow boil to me. Like I always felt like there was a level of tension in, in, in almost all of the scenes. Uh, all right. So, I mean, yeah, I don't know what else there is to say. It's like so awesome. <laughs> I can't even like come up with anything bad to say about it. So, yeah, there, there's just just go see it. Uh, you know, as Rush, it may like maybe not for turn everyone. Turn off your phone. Yeah, turn off turn your out phone. Turn off the lights. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, if but if you're the sort of person that this movie was made for, uh, it's just an amazing accomplishment. And by the way, it's not a very long movie. It's like an hour and a half. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yep. So just yeah, you could you can even watch it twice. That's how <laughs> that's how short it is. Um, but all right, yeah, cool. So I guess we'll uh, we'll wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Rajan Khanna, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Chris Avasco. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Happy to be here. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Rajan Khanna, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Chris Avasco for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.